Many thanks, Sophie, and uh, my thanks to Siobhan Fitzpatrick for the invitation to speak here at the Academy on Margaret Stokes. And I might add that Margaret Stokes is a very fitting subject for an Academy talk because she was so much associated with this august institution as well as the Society of Antiquaries. Also, uh, I just want to congratulate Siobhan on her exhibition because if you look at the display of each of the figures that are chosen for this exhibition, you'll see just how carefully Siobhan has chosen works that really, really illuminate each of the individual figures. Now, Sophie gave you the title of my talk, so you can see that much has changed since I gave Sophie that title. The, the title that I'm now working to, and it's an overview, this talk is an overview, it's not a definitive talk, and the leaflet, the little handout that I've given you, is a selection of Margaret Stokes' publications, not a definitive bibliography. And the reason I've given it to you is because I think there's no other way that you realize just how prolific this woman was. The list will show you that. Um, the reason I've chosen the words, the passionate devotion and artistic excellence of an enterprising and pioneering woman is those are the very words that the Academy chose to pay due regard and respect to Margaret Stokes after she died. The fact that you're able to look at this drawing of Margaret Stokes by one of her uh, many relatives, uh, Sarah Perser, uh, is very fortuitous because there are so very few images of Margaret Stokes available. I think there are about three or four photographs, of which I have three, and two works of art. We're starting with one by Sarah Perser, and we will end with a work by another distant relative, Walter Osborne. And the reason that Sarah Perser was able to take this uh, drawing of Margaret Stokes is because Margaret Stokes wasn't aware of it. She'd never have allowed her to do it. Stokes was probably attending one of uh, Sarah Perser's at homes that she held once a month on a Tuesday, and that were very, very major social gatherings. <clears throat> so she was quietly in the corner uh, observing what was going on and in her very much Victorian black uh, costume and hat and um, very much the woman that she was uh, seen around town when people recognized her. Uh, McNair, Margaret Stokes is the name I'm going to refer to her because it's the name she generally signed everything but she is quite often referred to as McNair, spelt two different ways, and that's the name that derived from her grandmother, because her mother was Mary Black, uh, came from Scotland, and uh, came from a merchant family, good family, and um, <clears throat> William Stokes met her there when he was studying in Edinburgh. Um, the Stokes family were so very important to Margaret Stokes, and indeed uh, to Irish life. I think they too are not just Margaret Stokes' long overdue attention, but they too, I think, are probably due a lot of attention because of their prominence in Irish life in the 19th century. Um, William Stokes, the father, uh, who appears as the youngest figure in the images on the far side, a very, a very handsome portrait by Frederick William Burton, um, he and his uh, father were both uh, professors of medicine in Trinity, Regis professors of medicine in Trinity College. Very distinguished figures, very much associated with the medical world and uh, developing new initiatives in medicine. However, what interests us where William Stokes is concerned is that he was an antiquary, very interested in antiquarian pursuits and he was also very interested in art. Petrie and Burton were his favourite artists. As a young man, aside from his training in Edinburgh, he had travelled Europe. He'd been to Germany, uh, France, Italy, uh, and further afield. And indeed, uh, when Frederick Burton made his first trip to Germany in 1842, I'm absolutely convinced it was William Stokes who encouraged him to do it. The more fatherly looking figure in the middle is Whitley Stokes. And Whitley was the eldest of nine children in the Stokes family. 
there were uh, six girls and three boys. He was Margaret's elder brother and Margaret was the eldest of the girls. And the two of them were very close. Uh, Whitley was a lawyer, philologist, and he became a renowned, um, a renowned figure in Celtic languages and literatures. And he has, in recent years, had somewhat of a, a renaissance with uh, conferences in Cambridge and indeed uh, publications on Whitley Stokes, including the recently discovered series of notebooks by Professor Davio Cronin in Leipzig that has cast so much light on his work. Um, so Whitley is a figure who has become far more well known, quite rightly. And the shadowy figure closer to me, uh, the um, uh, study by Walter Osborne, is Margaret Stokes. And we will look at that portrait much later on in the talk. Um, the Stokes family lived, and these are contemporary images, so they don't really um, give you the mood of the period. But this is 5 Merrion Square, which was the house where the family lived. Uh, three stories over a basement. It's where all the medical families lived at that time. It was quite a wealthy square, very, very social. Um, Owen O'Brien has written a very interesting book in which he describes the social circle of the Merrion Square set. And there was a lot of interaction, a lot of gatherings. Uh, the families all had staff, governesses, maids, butlers, etc. So it was a very prominent house with just down the road, Sir William Wilde and his even more prominent family. Um, as well as that, they had a country house in Hoth. And it was not uncommon, not just in the 19th century, but in the 20th century, to have a summer house in Hoth or Malahide or Port Marnock or Greystones or Bray. And indeed, I believe it's quite a fashionable new thing for you to live, uh, some of the younger wealthy people are living in Malahide and they have a flat in Dublin for work. So they too are adopting this lifestyle. But it meant for a very interesting uh, lifestyle for this family. Um, the Stokes um, were all very well educated because the father was so cultured and the mother was such a supportive woman. Um, <clears throat> they held a soiree on Saturday evenings and there were many other gatherings, and it is quite likely that at those evening gatherings, Whitley and Margaret Stokes and the other children would see some of the very, very many uh, literary uh, and cultural figures around Dublin. For example, with Stokes' connections to Trinity, it's quite likely that Margaret Stokes would have seen Reverend uh, Henthorne Todd, um, Reverend uh, Robert Graves, uh, John O'Donovan, uh, the Clareman, Eugene O'Curry, George Petrie, uh, and many, many of other Trinity figures at these gatherings. Um, they also, uh, a lot of time was spent with the family by the parents. And uh, I think uh, Margaret Stokes' earliest tutor in many ways would have been William Stokes. Um, she didn't go to school. Alexandra College was founded in 1866 and her sister taught there and uh, many of the ensuing family would attend Alexandra College. Um, it, it doesn't appear that uh, Margaret would have been in her 30s if she'd attended it. But she would most likely have had governesses. Uh, the Stokes, like the Jellets, like the Persers, had a, quite an independent frame of mind where their girls were concerned. And Michael Stokes, who wrote that um, very witty book, um, Seven uh, Generations of Four Families, the Persers, the Jellets, the O'Briens, and the Stokes, has written very uh, humorously about their upbringing. But in any case, she would have had governesses, and they would have taught her to draw, to paint, uh, to write, and to play music. I'm not sure about the sewing. But she certainly continued with the music and she managed the Hoth Choir very effectively, apparently, in later life. And we know that she uh, could draw and paint. And indeed, although my talk today is going to dwell probably more on her antiquarian and archaeology character, she was a very accomplished artist. 
Um, these group of people were her mentors. Uh, they were antiquarians, archaeologists, scholars and artists. And I have placed her father yet again very prominently uh, in the left corner because I think he had such a formative influence on her life, on Whitley's life, and indeed, as I mentioned, on Frederick Burton. He was a very influential figure, a very charming figure, quite witty, loved music, loved traditional Irish music, and we know folklore, and loved his social gatherings, but was also quite a serious figure. And uh, he would become, in uh, later life, president of the Royal Irish Academy. <clears throat> Petrie, or sorry, Stokes was very close to George Petrie and uh, the third Earl uh, of Dunraven, um, Edwin. And it was with Petrie and Dunraven that Stokes made many, many expeditions and excursions. And uh, as she grew up, uh, Margaret Stokes would have been brought on many of these trips. And of these three people, probably Petrie was to have the most formative influence on Margaret Stokes, not just as an antiquarian and an archaeologist, and we know him as the father of Irish archaeology, but he probably taught her painting. Um, her style was similar to his, um, though his there are differences, but probably it was on many of the trips that um, she learned how to paint and draw with Petrie. The Earl of Dunraven, I wouldn't underestimate his influence, and indeed we'll see in time to come how she edited his book. But I think the trips that uh, he took with uh, jo uh, William Stokes around the country and the notes that he took, and particularly the photography. Dunraven was a great photographer, and I think uh, Margaret Stokes learned a lot from that because we know she became a great photographer in later life as well. Um, I've included uh, Petrie's um, wonderful watercolour of Dunaingasa on Inishmore, um, because uh, a visit to the Aran Islands much later on will appear in Margaret Stokes' life. Now, this is a bit of an odd one, a bit of an eccentric slide, but I've included it because it opens up thoughts in my own mind. Um, first of all, you see on the far side that exquisite portrait of the famous actress Helen Fawcett by Frederick Burton. And closer to me, you can see the very handsome face of uh, Frederick Burton. It's an early self-portrait by Burton. And the reason these are included is because Helen Fawcett was a very famous actress. And I describe her as sort of a cross between Vanessa Redgrave and Meryl Streep. Maybe I could include Saoirse Ronan in that now. But she was very dramatic, very well known and a huge draw when she performed. So when she uh, she came to Dublin, and I think it's quite possible that she came to Dublin because of the Shakespearean society that Graves had set up in Trinity, of which Stokes was a very early member. Stokes was very interested in Shakespeare. And I suspect the first time that Frederick Burton uh, and Margaret Stokes and Petrie, etc., met Helen Fawcett, was quite likely to have been at a gathering in Stokes' house. Um, Helen Fawcett performed in Dublin uh, many times, and all of the men fell madly in love with her. And I mean madly in love with her, with the likes of Sir William Wilde and Frederick Burton competing for her hand. But she was having none of that because she married Sir Theodore Martin, who would become the biographer of um, Queen Victoria. Um, she's a very intelligent woman, and any any woman I mention in conjunction with Frederick William Burton tends to be very intelligent. He liked bright women. She's a very intelligent woman. She did a study of Shakespeare and published on Shakespeare. She would have been a very familiar figure in the Stokes household, and indeed, as time went on, the Stokes and the Martins became very good friends, so that any time the Martins came to Dublin to visit, they stayed with the Stokes. And likewise, when Whitley, the figure closer to me, again, he looks like a very cheerful, friendly, um, cuddly kind of man. And I can assure you, he was anything but cheerful, friendly, and he certainly wasn't cuddly. But his character has been redeemed in recent years. He was quite a stern person. Um, in any case, 
when Whitley would write to his parents pleading with them to let Margaret come to visit him in London because Whitley had gone to London to study law and was struggling a bit in London. Um, it was, uh, he would plead with them to let Margaret come to broaden her horizons and if she did she would stay with the Martins who would chaperone her. Um, and she did from time to time during the 40s and the 50s. Now the reason Burton is included in uh, this particular slide is this, this screen is because uh, I believe as a teenager and you can see I have Margaret listed there as a teenager as a teenager, I think Margaret Stokes fell hook, line and sinker for Frederick William Burton. And I think throughout her life, her, her feeling for Burton never changed. I've always thought of it as a somewhat teenage infatuation. Right up to her death, I think she was very keen on Burton. And I think she had difficulty managing her feelings. So when Whitley Stokes would encourage his parents to let Margaret visit London and all of the correspondence dealing with that is in the archives in Trinity. It's a very interesting con correspondence. It runs from about I think 1840s to 1880 and it covers Whitley Stokes period in London and from London to India and from India back to London. But Margaret is referred to it very frequently because most of the letters are to Margaret and from Margaret and in these letters, Whitley refers to her as Maddie. Maddie was her nickname, my dear Maddie. But he does refer in those letters to Margaret having visited London and that she stayed with the Martins and that in the presence of Burton, um, she behaved quite well. He writes this in a letter to his mother. So it indicates that, you know, she had a difficulty in not showing her affections. Uh, but Whitley Stokes, on the other hand, who re referred to Burton as avuncular, reassuring and trustworthy, used to refer to him as Mr. Burton, which was quite a formal um, reference between friends. And he was very critical of the artist for spending all his time in Germany. And the Scottish Highlander print that you see there in uh, small print is a reference to the kind of work that Burton was having uh, drawn, he was drawing and was having printed in Germany because according to Whitley Stokes who knew Dante Gabriel Rossetti, the pre-Raphaelite, he would make far more money doing this in London than Rossetti. So part of the slide is about the links and connections between all of these families. This is a theme that will recur throughout the talk on Margaret Stokes. All these families were linked and connected and these connections would help them throughout their life. Now, as Margaret was growing up uh, and traveling out with her father on the various antiquarian uh, trips and excavations and excursions, um, in 1857, this very famous visit took place to Dublin of the British Association for the Advancement of Science. Now, it wasn't their first visit. They visited many times in the 19th century and they also visited Belfast and I think Cork. But this one was uh, uh, quite an important one because the Natural History Museum on Merrion Square had just opened. So it was really specifically to see the Natural History Museum that they came. And when the visit was over, Sir William Wilde organized a visit of the ethnographical section of this meeting to on a three-day visit to the Aran Islands. So they took the train down to Galway and they commandeered a steamship and they traveled to the Aran Islands where they had a wonderful time and were mesmerized by the lifestyle there. And on Sunday, on Sunday, they took the train back to Dublin. But in the meantime, a small group of Irish scholars and antiquarians stayed on and Petrie hired a house in Kilronan and he uh, also hired a boat and they got a local antiquary on the islands. So for just under two weeks, this group of uh, William Stokes, Whitley, Margaret Stokes, uh, Sir Samuel Ferguson, Mary Stokes, uh, Burton, Petrie, John O'Donovan, the great, great uh, Irish scholar, uh, the great antiquarian, 
um, Eugene O'Curry, and I'm probably missing out on one or two figures, all stayed on the Aran Islands, using this boat to travel between the islands, the antiquary to explain and uh, show them around. And during that time, uh, Eugene O'Curry took down the music that Petrie, Petrie would take down the music, Eugene O'Curry would take down the words and then translate them for Petrie. And during that time, he took down 30 songs, which were later published in 1902. Burton headed off with Samuel Ferguson and Margaret Stokes, and they did lots of drawing and sketching around the islands. You can just imagine the lifestyle, that in the evenings they would settle in their cottage around a fire, eat their food, locals would come and play music with them, sing songs and tell stories. When Frederick Burton returned to Germany after this trip, he wrote back to Samuel Ferguson, this was the happiest time of my life. I was the happy man in your company because here you had like-minded scholars, antiquarians, artists, all enjoying doing the thing they enjoyed most with people who were their favorite people in the world. The little sketch on the far side shows you uh, Samuel Ferguson rowing a boat on which Eugene O'Curry sits with the top hat and he's taking down a story that an own Aran Island woman is telling him. Immediately below that, you see a portrait, I'm sorry it's so very small, of Samuel Ferguson, who trained as a lawyer. Uh, he was from Belfast and who ended up being deputy keeper of the public Re records office. And this is a, a portrait that Burton did and inscribed it to my dear friend Samuel Ferguson. The uh, watercolour in the centre is the altar of the four beautiful saints um, and it was done by Frederick Burton on the uh, Inish Moor and he dedicated it to, uh, Fred, to Margaret Stokes and it's inscribed the altar of the church of the four beauties Aaron Moor painted by Frederick Burton for Margaret Stokes September 1857. But even more importantly you have of the published songs that Eugene O'Curry note, noted, um, this particular one, 1919D634, uh, Eugene O'Curry dedicated the words and the air, published, which was published as the complete edition of Irish music noted by Petrie. He dedicated it from one song, and it was a song sung by Pat Mullen, Father Mora Amvalia for Miss Stokes, Eugene O'Curry, October the 20th, 1857. Now, I feel this is an extremely important marker because here you have people who all knew each other and who at this stage had accepted Margaret Stokes, age 25, as a, as, as a growing, developing uh, antiquarian and scholar and artist. And this was their way of marking respect and regard for Margaret Stokes. So I think this is a very important marker. That same year, we find Margaret Stokes uh, uh, drawing on Inish Murray Island, County Sligo. And here's a series of four drawings from the National Gallery. I would point out about these drawings. They are accomplished, but you can definitely see this is an artist, a young artist, age 25, still trying to find her feet. Um, she's learning how to grow, she's learning how to draw uh, prehistoric monuments. Any of you who've drawn them, and I have, will find that it's quite difficult to get the positions of the stones correct, etc., and whatever. But she is spending time very carefully trying to be accurate and noting the details. Early recognition for, for Margaret Stokes. Among this circle, uh, Frederick, uh, sorry, Samuel Ferguson, who was a friend of hers and a friend, very close friend of the family's, saw the kind of work that she was doing and the quality of her work. And uh, when he decided to publish the Cromlech on Hoth, or the Cromlech of Hoth, there are various descriptions of it, the Cromlech on Hoth, an ode to Hoth by Samuel Ferguson, he asked uh, Margaret Stokes would she like to do some illustrations for it and she went off to study the Book of Kells and the Book of Durrow and these are three of the illuminations that Margaret Stokes did for this book. 
they are quite exquisite and any of you who have ever tried uh, to spend some time studying even one initial from the Lindisfarne Gospels or the Book of Durrow or the Book of Kells will know just how long it takes you to get one initial correct and to take all the minute detail of the animals and the animal heads and how they interweave and the interlace and the only reason why I say this is because I tried to do this myself one year before I went to college and I learned just how difficult it was so I have enormous respect for what Margaret Stokes has achieved in these illuminated initials uh, on this book and I've only included a few of them because she also did drawings from nature a little bit whimsical for my taste but they're very very fine and um, you can see how on the frontispiece of the book the Cromlech on Hoth Margaret Stokes is acknowledged she's acknowledged by her monogram which is an S inside uh, an M uh, when Burton saw the initials that she did, he said the initial letters are quite exquisite. He was very taken by the quality of her work. Following, the book was published in 1861 and it did gain her a certain amount of recognition in Dublin. Following that, the Reverend James Henthorne Todd, another figure who really deserves a lot more attention, uh, a very prominent figure in Trinity and a good, good friend of Frederick Burton as well. Uh, published um, Vetusta Monumenta, Volume 7, by the Society of Antiquaries of London, of which a lot of these figures were connected, and indeed Burton would become a fellow in years to come. Uh, five of the plates in Lytho in colour were by Storch and Kramer, all but two from drawings by Margaret Stokes. So yet again, we have within this networking circle in Dublin, Todd, involving Margaret Stokes in his work because it saw the quality of what she had done for Samuel Ferguson. We find then in 1872 when Ferguson published his great poem Congal, I think it was three volumes, um, he, in fact it might have been five volumes, uh, he dedicated his poem Congal to his uh, uh, the three much prized friends Margaret Stokes, Whitley Stokes, and Frederick William Burton. Indeed, when Burton settled in London uh, and in time as George Petrie died, it was, it was Samuel Ferguson who became the great friend and to a degree mentor to Frederick Burton. We keep up the family connections because we find in 1864 when Burton's very famous painting, uh, The Meeting on the Turret Stairs, was, was uh, painted and exhibited at the Old Watercolour Society in London, that the subject of this painting was a Danish ballad that it turned out that Whitley Stokes had translated in and published in Fraser's magazine in 1855. What we find is that, in fact, uh, it's a lovely translation that he did, but he seems to have changed his mind in 1864 and he did another translation of it which he gave to Margaret Stokes. Now whether she gave it to Burton or not it's a much plainer translation of the original ballad but in any case this painting of course got uh, brought Burton much fame although I have to admit the fame came in the 21st century not really in the 19th century. He got some fame from it but not a huge amount and the painting changed hands several times in the 19th century and in the end Margaret Stokes managed to buy it in 1898 and it was only when Stokes bought it that Burton gave her copyright to the painting. Um, we, Stokes herself knew about this painting when it was exhibited because she kept very close tabs on Burton from Dublin and she was also very well aware that it just a few years after this Burton would fall in love with a woman called Mary Palliser from Waterford but that's a whole different story we won't go into that. Um, when Margaret Stokes purchased this painting she kept it beside her in her studio and this is one of the very few photographs of Margaret Stokes painting in her studio and somewhere beside her there is the meeting on the turret stairs on the floor. What was Margaret Stokes up to in 1864? Well, she was up in Donegal, and this is one of the drawings that she executed 
of a cross in a churchyard in uh, Glen Columkill in uh, Donegal. Now we see Margaret Stokes starting to um, starting to come into her own, not quite, but starting to get to grips with serious antiquarian work. And we see after George Petrie died, um, anybody who knows the work of George Petrie will know that his, his affairs weren't left in the best order. Anybody who works in the Royal Irish Academy will know that very well. And uh, Margaret Stokes was one of a number of people brought in to try and sort his affairs out. Um, in the end, she edited Christian inscriptions in the Irish language, which was published in two volumes between 1872 and 1878. Now this, for anybody who has ever done editorial work, it's a great training ground in looking very carefully, in fact-finding and checking and trying to get your data correct. But it's a real learning exercise and to be learning of something like the Ohm inscriptions that Margaret Stokes was working on didn't really stood by Margaret Stokes in later life. Following on from that, when the Earl of Dunraven died, his son, and he left a very generous bequest to ensure that his great work on Irish architecture that he'd been absorbed with for a long time would be published. So his son roped in Margaret Stokes. He saw her as the natural person to do this job. And she published it in two volumes between 1875 to 1878. And um, in these, in fact, in most of the publications that Margaret Stokes edited, uh, she would always include a work or two by Frederick Burton. But in this instance, what's interesting is in the preface that she wrote, <clears throat> and that Dunraven also wrote, uh, to the Dunraven's notes on Irish architecture, she does make clear her debt to George Petrie, and I'm just quoting a tiny bit. To the mere archaeologist, antiquity is everything and art nothing. But to the mind of the great man who founded the Irish School of Archaeology, George Petrie, was one of a wider grasp to perceive the qualities which form the essential elements of the individuality of Irish art. And that's an interesting quote that she should make about George Petrie, because for most of the rest of her life, Margaret Stokes would work to show the distinctiveness of Irish art. We see that in working on Christian inscriptions, Margaret Stokes copied a drawing that Burton did when he was on the Aran Islands. And I'm showing you on the bottom of the page, just underneath the frontispiece, the drawing that Margaret Stokes did. And just beside it, you can see the inscription in which she notes her debt to copying one of Burton's drawings. There is no better way to learn how to draw and to study a work than to copy it, as you will see so many artists, for example, working of copies of Michelangelo, Leonardo, Titian, etc. Um, and then closer to uh, you, or closer to me, you will see this tiny little scrappy piece of a drawing, which I came across early this year when I was studying Margaret Stokes' um, bits and pieces in the National Gallery of Ireland's collection. And this wasn't even registered as a work by Stokes. But after going through a lot of the works, I identified it as by Stokes, something that she had noted in Christian inscriptions and that she used in early Christian art in Ireland. It's a Latin three-line cross with key patterns in the terminals, probably 9th or 10th century. And as Rhinel O'Flynn was passing by me at some stage earlier this year and saw me looking at it, he said, oh, he said, that's probably Clonmac noise. And so it is probably a Clonmac noise cross. But it shows you something that I found in the Stoke work of Margaret Stokes again and again, how this little cross that she had seen Petrie use, and Petrie used in Christian inscriptions as he was working his way through, trying to identify the different types of crosses, Stokes noting it, and it comes out in pretty much all of her publications from then on. <clears throat> Now, this is a great phrase. I mean, Margaret Stokes really should have been living in the 21st century. She should have been professor of archaeology or the history of art in UCD. Because she says she only came out at 50, would any woman have ever said that 
in the 20th century, never mind the 19th century. But we know exactly what she means by that. In 1878, her father died. Her mother had died nine years earlier. Kind of that, that in itself is another story. And by the time her father died, three of her siblings had already died. So you can imagine for 10 years just how much of Margaret Stokes's life was spent caring for her father and family. I don't think she had a great deal of freedom and I don't think it happened until her father died, which is why she says, I only came out at 50. That's what she means by I only came out at 50. At, by this stage in 1876, the Royal Irish Academy had already pretty much recognised and acknowledged that Margaret Stokes was a serious scholar. And it's not just because her father was president of the Royal Irish Academy at the time, although I have to admit that that must have helped. But I think it's just by sheer dint of the amount of work she was doing in the Academy and for the Academy that they felt the need to honour her by making her an honorary member. Because, of course, you know, women couldn't become members of the Royal Irish Academy until the middle of the 20th century. What we find here is Margaret Stokes finally working on her own publications. When her father died, he left uh, Five Merrion Square to William Stokes, his son who would become the great surgeon, Sir William Stokes. And he left Carrig Brake, the summer house, uh, to Margaret Stokes. But it wasn't quite as simple as that. She had to look after one of his sisters, an aunt who was living there at the time. And she also had to allow William Stokes and his wife to come out and stay there. Now, that wasn't a hardship. It was a very big house. But still, even though she was left the house, as always was the case with uh, Victorian women, it wasn't a straightforward situation. And indeed, she couldn't live there for quite a period of time because she just couldn't afford to live there. It was in later life that she actually lived there. And it's no harm asking the question at this point, when her father did leave her Carrick Brake, how did Margaret Stokes survive? What did she live on? Was she left some great legacy that she could live on? Well, no, she wasn't. And that appears to be the case, that there may have been some money left to her. I haven't been able to see that. I suspect it's possible that one or two of the brothers helped her out. I think once she began to publish, <clears throat> she was very careful about trying to make money from her publications. I think she was probably quite a frugal person. And I think just like the Yates sisters, Lily and Lolly Yates, uh, I think she reused her clothes if they if they got a hole, I think she patched them. Uh, if her shoes were worn out, I think she brought them to the cobblers and she had them resold. Uh, I think if she had a jacket that was reusable, then she turned it inside out. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever known people who did things like that, but I do. Um, and I still even know people who are wonderful seamstresses who really can. My, gran my granny was a, a tailor. And I remember when I was at school, I had a very expensive school uniform and I had a kilt as a skirt. And she came down one day and because I was running around the garden, getting it filthy with my brothers, she took it in. And when it was handed back to me a week later, it was turned inside out and it looked brand new again. So in those days, people really were very careful and very skilled in how they did things. And Margaret Stokes was one of these people. Um, in any case, she published Early Christian Architecture in Ireland. It was published by Bell in London. And in that, she has a dedication to Edith Chevenny Trench, another uh, quite uh, individual woman. And I've just, as always, taken one tiny section of it. We women need not fear stepping outside our sphere. Now, take that with a grain of salt, because what Margaret Stokes feels like, means by that is not exactly what we mean in the 21st century. To this book, she contributed 22 woodcuts of her drawings. And I'm showing you three of these woodcuts. One is of an object taken from the Petrie Museum. Another is of a, an entrance to an oratory. And the other is a landscape. So it shows you three different uh, drawings from Margaret Stokes' work. 
Um, this is a slightly different thing that she was involved in, and this is probably uh, Margaret Stokes noting the fact that she was really a key figure in the early Celtic revival. She was asked by the publishers of the of Christian iconography, a book that was written by a French uh, art historian and archaeologist, uh, the history of Christian art in the Middle Ages. And the first volume was published in 1851, and the second one was published in 1896. And it was the second volume that she worked on. Uh, Ellen Millington translated from French into English. The publishers asked Stokes because, according to them, she was known as an accomplished student and writer in this branch of art. What do we mean by this branch of art? We mean early Christian Irish art. And uh, she completed the volume two with all the additions and appendices. Not just that, and I've shown you the original uh, edition and more contemporary versions of it. She also acted as a consultant on architectural projects of an Hiberno-Romanesque style, including James Franklin Fuller's St. Michael and St. Angel's Church, Clane, County Kildare, which was consecrated in 1883. Early Christian Art in Ireland is the next book of her own that she published. And in each of these books, you can see there is an accumulation of more and more knowledge, and she reuses material that she has gathered already. This uh, volume, published in two parts, um, became a South Kensington Museum handbook. And any of you who know your museum history will know that the South Kensington Museum became the Victorian Albert Museum, very much associated with Ireland through Dublin's Museum of Science and Art, the National Museum of Ireland. And it was printed, reprinted much later when Ireland became a free state in 1928. Stokes contributed 104 woodcuts and drawings to this book. And I'm just showing you three of them. Again, to illustrate three different types, metalwork, the Arda Chalice, this wonderful shrine of St. Moog, uh, in which you see St. John Theologus, who stands in sorrow, his cheek resting upon his hand. I just love this particular shrine because she shows the individuality and the character of the saints as they're portrayed. I, I love it when you really study uh, Irish metalwork and the high crosses and the manuscripts. The figures in them are such individuals. Everybody describes them as having almond-shaped eyes and straight nose and whatever. Far from it, they're all great individuals. Um, and you see the Irish, the High Cross of Murdoch Monaster Boys, and of course we know Margaret Stokes was passionate about Irish High Crosses. Um, the book, when she published it, as usual, had corrections and additions made by the brother Whitley Stokes on all of her works. She sent them to the brother to have edited, but also Bishop William Reeves, another figure who deserves some attention, and others. She, she was never, um, uh, she was always uh, aware of the need to uh, correct and amend and update her own work, which is a very good thing to be able to uh, do. And uh, Whitley, of course, would continue to do that. He'd, I always felt he had a very patronizing attitude to uh, Margaret Stokes. He was a very good brother, tiny bit of a bully, but I think that was just the nature of the man, a bit patronizing, but really did understand, and also knew that Margaret was the only one of the family who really understood him. Now, Siobhan's wonderful exhibition uh, shows these works, which is why I'm including them, because she was quite an enterprising antiquarian, and enterprising is definitely the word you'd use with Margaret Stokes. These research photographs on the left of Irish High Crosses illustrate rubbings that she took on the shaft in St. Kevin's Oratory, Glendalough. The two illustrations of the Irish High Crosses on the right were adapted by Stokes from photographs before she had them enlarged for, pub for publication. Um, and again, something that Margaret Stokes was able to do after her, her uh, father died and she uh, developed a degree of freedom. And remember, she would have been very much constrained by the Victorian um, patterns of the period. So it was really in the last 20 years of her life that she freed herself up. And not just did she travel all over Ireland, 
but she traveled in Germany, in Italy, and in France, all in search of traces of the Irish missionaries. The first book that she published as a result of these trips was Six Months in the Apennines, also known as a pilgrimage in search of vestiges of Irish saints in Italy. Now, it was written as a series of letters to her sister Elizabeth, and she started them all with uh, Dear E. And when that book was published, um, it was somewhat sarcastically reviewed as perhaps a little bit parochial. But Margaret Stokes, in writing this book, was continuing in a very honourable tradition of travel writing, uh, such as in the case of uh, Anna Jemson or Elizabeth Eastlake. So there was nothing parochial about what she was doing. However, when she published a number of years later, Three Months in the Forests of France, a pilgrimage in search of the vestiges of the Irish saints, she uh, simplified, she, she pulled back from such affectionate commentary. And although she wrote them as a series of letters, it's a more objective book. In, in some ways, it's a more mature book. Her own photographs were what she used for the illustrations in this book. And I've shown you one such photograph which Siobhan has included in the display. And it's from the baptismal font in the church of Santa Saveur in Luxile with a note beside, a tiny little note there in which she instructs uh, the, uh, to reduce the size for publication. And you can see beside it the dedication that she has for, uh, to my sister Elizabeth Stokes, who would go on to teach in Alexandra College, and to the friends who form her church history class in the Literary Society, Society of Alexandra College, where Margaret Stokes would go on to give a series of lectures uh, in 1877, and she would publish them in 1880. Now, I hope you can see these illustrations. They're not the strongest, but they're actually quite important in my opinion. And this shows Margaret Stokes, the intrepid traveler that comes out so well in that book by Michael Perser, in which he describes her she went to the Skelligs, the Maharees of Castle Gregory, County Kerry, Inishglora in the Atlantic beyond the Mullet, County Mayo, St. Macdara's Island off Connemara, and Inchigoyle Island in Loch Corrib, County Galway. Her trips off the west coast in Kirks or Hookers on the open Atlantic. This was probably in the 1880s and 90s. Have any of you been on a Kirk? or a hooker in the open Atlantic? Can you just imagine Margaret Stokes climbing on board a hooker or a curric, wearing the kind of peculiar costumes that she wore? These big dreadful black skirts with these costumes and stuff around her neck. I just can't imagine it. But she did it because I've read Margaret Stokes' description of uh, what she did. She knew exactly what she was up to. She, no fear, this woman had no fear once she came into her own. So what you're looking at here is some works from, again, that I looked at in, earlier this year in um, the National Gallery. And this is where I identified this wonderful print. Um, and that is the, all from Dingle, uh, St. Galeris's Oratory and Skellig Michael. I mean, it's just extraordinary. I was talking to Michael Gibbons at a book launch last night, and he, he has trampled all over Skellig Michael. And he said that people think that when the monks lived there, that they were very thin and ascetic. But he said, if you lived there, you'd be eating from the fish and the birds and every single thing that came your way. They lived extremely well and lived very long lives. If anything got them, it was probably the chill or the cold. But you can imagine somebody like Margaret Stokes uh, at that time, working her way around the island, sitting on a corner. And the reason uh, you can see how accurately she uh, took this is you can see the drawing, even if it is very faint, of that exact spot, uh, which was great to be able to identify these for the gallery's records. She was a forceful scholar, as those who worked in the Royal Irish Academy would get to know. God help the poor publications committee. Um, Yet again, among Siobhan's display is this terrific letter by Stokes. I 
she hasn't dated it, but I suspect it was about 1898, um, explaining her use of photographs to, to, use, to produce clear illustrations. And basically what she did was she uh, took photographs and she was very, very careful. She took rubbings, first of all, of the uh, objects that she was photographing. Now that's, of course, uh, nowadays there is a whole new school of thinking about taking rubbings from any high cross. But never mind, in those days, she took a rubbing in order to understand the outlines of the cross. So she knew what she was looking for. Then she would patiently wait and wait and wait until the sunlight hit the shaft of the Irish High Cross or whatever it was. And then she took her photograph. Now, as she said, the photograph taken may not be especially good as a photograph, but it is sufficient to answer my purpose. So in other words, she it, it served the purpose uh, for which she wanted it to. And she fought her ground with the publications committee in here because they wanted to commission a separate photographer to produce better quality photographs. But she said, no, you stick with my photographs because they work with the illustrations. Um, was she appreciated by her family? Now, that's a very good question. Um, in later life, when her sister and uh, her brothers uh, married and had children, she was always known as Aunt Margaret. And I think Aunt Margaret is a very good description of Margaret Stokes. Um, she was very good to her nieces and nephews. Um, she was very good to the students in Alexandra College when she gave her series of lectures. And I might add that Margaret Stokes was fluent in French and Italian and German, and as with a lot of Anglo-Irish, including Frederick Burton, I am at a loss to know just how much Irish she knew, but I bet she knew an awful lot of it. Whether she was fluent or not, I just don't know. But I have the same feeling with Frederick Burton. Um, he, he makes links with Lady Gregory about words in Irish, and I have a feeling he knew an awful lot of it. But in any case, um, I think she was held in affection, if somewhat in awe, by the family, because make no mistake, Margaret Stokes was a formidable character. But here we have Sir William Stokes, the great surgeon, who wrote a book about his father, because we know, of course, his father, William Stokes, wrote the great book about George Petrie. He dedicated it to his sister Margaret, and the dedication is quite interesting. The beloved daughter and constant companion of him whose life must ever serve as a beacon to those who strive to elevate the profession of medicine. This work is dedicated by her brother, the author. So I think that's a very important dedication, a marker by the brother to the sister. Um, <clears throat> Margaret Stokes herself left 85 works to the National Gallery of Ireland in 1900 when she died. She died six months after Frederick William Burton, and she was in the process of that at that time of trying to write a biography of Burton and, and discovering at the time that they didn't know so much about Burton after all. She left an album of work by George Petrie, is about 70 leaves in it, some of which I've gone through. Um, 10 works by Frederick Burton, very important works in the collection, and a work by James Petrie and uh, William Wakeman and I identified a drawing in the collection that relates to this work by James Petrie. These are two works by um, Petrie that I'm showing you on the far side. One of them, uh, St. Bridget's Well in Liscanner, and the work by uh, William Wakeman, because Wakeman was very close to Margaret Stokes in her scholarship in later life, and indeed he, he continued it on after she died. These are just two of the drawings that are in the National Gallery's collection relating to County Longford. You can note her style and how she often signed them with the inverted M and S, her monogram. Margaret Stokes, in my humble opinion, was definitely a peregrinus. And when the Stokes Symposium was held earlier this summer in the Royal, uh, the Royal Society of Antiquaries, um, Linda Mulvin um, gave a wonderful talk on uh, Margaret Stokes and her travels in relation to her publications. But the more I read about Margaret Stokes, the more I think this is where her heart and soul was. She was, in fact, 
a traveller, and she was travelling in search of the traces of the Irish missionaries who either went to Europe or who went to live on the islands. And I think had she been reincarnated in one way, that's what she would have been. Um, she describes them in Irish art in Bavaria as devoted men from a little island in the Western Ocean, barefoot and poorly clad, their outfit consisting of a pilgrim's staff, a leather water bottle, wallet, and a case containing relics, relics preaching the gospel of Christ. Because, of course, make no mistake, Margaret Stokes was a very, very spiritual person. For her, the greater glory of God was the purpose of existence. In her introduction to early Christian architecture in Ireland, she says that monasticism and the love of an hermetic life are the natural growth of a fervent religious spirit in any period. And she concludes, only in such a scene as lies before him in the Church of St. Michael on the Skellig can a thoughtful mind realize to the full the strength of that spirit which drove man, i.e. woman, in his undying struggle with the powers of evil into those solitudes. That kind of uh, sentiment, I suspect, accords completely with Margaret Stokes' character. This, uh, when Margaret Stokes died in 1900, there was a special note made of her in the um, records of the Royal Irish Academy. First of all, I just wanted to note that in 1900, Stokes just left a few publications to the Royal Irish Academy. That's the interesting thing. She left more, more, more material went elsewhere. However, in 2014, the Royal College of Physicians of Ireland transferred the Margaret Stokes archive to the Royal Irish Academy. So the Royal Irish Academy now has a major archive of Stokes' work. Here are two of the very few and only photographs of Margaret Stokes. The one that you see on the top of her sitting on the side of a chair, I think that's not even a studio portrait. I think, but I could be wrong. It's one taken when Margaret Stokes was posing with a big group of people who were organizing the preparations for the visit of Queen Victoria to come to Dublin in 1900. Because at that time, Stokes was trying to organize the loan of her um, copy of Burton's meeting on the turret stairs to go up to the Viceregal Lodge, but she died before it. Michael Stokes comments on this particular photograph, um, or sorry, Michael Perser, and of course he's a very distant relative. He says, there she is sitting in her Victorian, out-of-dated, most peculiar costume with her bonnet, uh, smiling cleverly at everybody. And he said, in his opinion, I completely agree with him, she knew she was a bit of a character. She knew that they thought she was an oddity. She knew that her outfit was uh, daft for the period and completely unfashionable. And she didn't care a hoot. That was the point about it. The other photograph is a more interesting one because, as we know, Margaret Stokes was associated with um, Alexandra College. And indeed, they would... Uh, set up a memorial lecture after her after she died and towards the end of the 19th century they wanted to take a they wanted to commission a portrait but she wouldn't hear of it under no circumstances so in the end she agreed to have a photograph taken and the agreement was that they would take a photograph of her in the field as she was sketching the cross of moon down in Kildare and the most interesting thing about this photograph, and you can see the extraordinary paraphernalia that Margaret Stokes traveled with when she was out working in the field, her tables, her watercolors, you know, I can tell you drawing and painting outdoors, if you haven't ever tried it, is no fun because Ireland is a very windy country. And uh, in case you hadn't noticed, it rains quite frequently. And um, when it when the sun shines it's such a surprise that you're never there with your umbrella so it's hard work and I think it's a very good photograph because she's shown this is the real Margaret Stokes she is completely absorbed looking at the cross any real artist is looking more at what they're drawing 
at the object than at what they're drawing. She's studying it carefully in order to transcribe it accurately. And uh, she's something around her shoulders because it's probably quite cold and uh, absorbed in her work. In 1876, as I mentioned to you, the Academy made her their first Irish-born woman honorary member. On in uh, November 1900, volume seven of the Council Minutes records profound regret at the loss of their distinguished honorary member. It is not usual to give a special notice of honorary members, but it is impossible to pass over one honoured name without a reference to the quality and nature of that member's work, concluding, it will be hard to find again the same passionate devotion to the object of her study and the same artistic excellence in the elaboration of her work. And that's in the Academy Records for 16, 16th of March, 19. Uh, As I said, it would be a century later, uh, in 1949, before the Academy would elect their first woman ordinary members, and you can see they're listed there, uh, Claire O'Halloran, Dr. Claire O'Halloran, who gave the first uh, excellent talk in this series. Uh, if you haven't heard it, you should listen to the podcast, because she talks all about the slow pace that the Academy recognised the scholarship and uh, uh, achievements of women, it, that they didn't make the ordinary members until 1849, and extraordinary though you may find it to believe, the uh, Royal Irish Academy elected their first woman, Professor Mary Daly, a fi uh, president of the Academy in 2014, after 230 years. And as I mentioned at that talk, uh, just a few weeks ago, the Royal Hibernian Academy over in Eli Place elected their first woman president, their first woman keeper, and their first woman secretary. Uh, Abigail uh, O'Brien is the uh, president, and that's the first woman in 195 years. So we are getting somewhere, even if the pace of change is painfully slow. I wanted to end on this slide. And because this is an interesting one, it notes the honours that were given to Margaret Stokes by the Royal Irish Academy and by the Royal Society of Antiquaries of Ireland in 1891. Uh, she was an associate member of the Antiquarian Society of Scotland and she was an honorary member of the Royal, the County Kildare Archaeological Society. And indeed, Lord uh, uh, Walter Fitzgerald wrote her obituary. Uh, which was published by the Kildare Society. Um, this particular uh, drawing of Margaret Stokes, when I first put it in the Burton exhibition a year ago, and I was standing with um, Anne Hodge studying it, I really, I was tearing my hair out because I said I must include an image of Margaret Stokes in the Burton exhibition, just as I must include a reference to Annie Caldwell, because between the Caldwell bequest and the Stokes bequest, that really started the foundation of the Gallery's Burton collection. But I said, how could so great an artist as Walter Osborne have produced a portrait of Margaret Stokes for her to emerge such a wimp-like looking character? And I didn't actually figure that out until this year, when by chance I was discussing this with um, an artist called Garode Hayes, who's doing a mast, who's doing an emlet on Osborne's portraits. Now he's both an artist and an, and an art historian. And I was showing it to him and I was saying, it really puzzles me. Um, we, were, we were discussing something else and I said, well, what about this? And he said, well, the interesting thing about this portrait is he said, I firmly believe it's posthumous. And of course, once I discovered that Margaret Stokes would never sit for a portrait, she was not, by the way, the most handsome looking woman. And maybe she was conscious of her looks the way William Orpen was, but she just wouldn't sit for a portrait. So it makes absolute sense that William Osborne, a distant relative of her, Walter Osborne, a distant relative of hers, would use whatever photographs that he could find to do an image her of her after death because it's a very gentle, kind,
and sweet image of Margaret Stokes. And I think Margaret Stokes wasn't gentle, kind and sweet. I think Margaret Stokes was a forceful, enterprising, very strong, determined woman who would not suffer fools gladly. So she mightn't even recognize herself in this uh, portrait. But on the other hand, it's a wonderful to actually have a portrait of Margaret Stokes by somebody who knew her and that it was undertaken so close to the time after she died. The gallery dates this to the 1890s, but I have told the National Gallery that in my opinion, it's a posthumous portrait. Um, when she died, she was buried in St. Vinton's Cemetery in Hoth in Sutton, where her father and most of the Stokes family are buried. Thank you very much.